This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So I'm very honored and delighted that uh, Hozan is with us. Uh, Hozan Alan Sanaki, who is a, uh, was a long-term student and uh, is a Dharma heir of Sojin Mel Weitzman, who himself was a former abbot of San Francisco Zen Center and the first, the founder and the first abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center. Uh, Hozan is now the abbot um, as of January of this year. And therefore we are in a Dharma family relationship. Hozan and uh, many of us through Blanche Hartman, uh, the founder of our temple and uh, other Dharma heirs of Sojins are one big family <laughs> of, uh, of, of uh, the San Francisco Zen Center lineage of Suzuki Roshi. So uh, it's an, another reason why it's wonderful to have Hozan with us. In addition to his long uh, Zen practice uh, and um, leadership in many roles leading up to becoming abbot of Berkeley Zen Center, um, Hozan, uh, and I hope that this is the subject of his talk today, has engaged globally um, with engaged Buddhism in 1991, he was the, in the leadership of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and uh, the International Network of Engaged Buddhism um, and is the founding director of the Clearview Project, which he's engaged with while he also uh, leads the Berkeley Zen Center. Um, and uh, just reading from the website, um, offering Buddhist-based resources and support with a focus on Indian Dalit Buddhists Myanmar and the Rohingyas, as well as um, here in the United States. So uh, a true bodhisattva. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for coming and offering your teaching to us today. Thank you, Charles. And did I see Mako there also? She's there. <laughs> ah, it's wonderful to see old friends. And um, I was thinking about, well, the announcement was going there, the wonderful, oak tree in your front yard. Uh, I, when I was there a number of years ago, I took, I sort of lay down under the tree and took a photograph of the incredible network of branches. It was, it was wintertime, so they were bare. Uh, but uh, this is what Joshu, Joshu used that as the explanation for why Bodhidharma came from China. He said the oak tree in the front yard and I gather you've ordained a tree, is that correct? Some years ago, that's wonderful. It's, it's a real presence. I haven't been to Austin for a few years and uh, I look forward to another time. I have friends and uh, uh, a cousin there and it's a, it's a wonderful place. So my talk today the subject matter is, oh, I also want to acknowledge. So um, here's a picture of Sojin Roshi. Uh, and yesterday was uh, his 100th day memorial. Uh, so he's been, he died 100 days ago. And uh, of course, in a sense, we, just continue moving on and time keeps rolling on. And in another sense, just to say, uh, he visits me in my dreams. 
sometimes uh, warm, warmly and affectionately, sometimes cantankerously and critically. Uh, and uh, so he's, he is deeply uh, embedded in my mind as he is in, I know some of you as well. So my talk today, the title is Liberty, Equality, Fraternity. And it's, it's a primary teaching of uh, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, uh, who was basically the, the founder of the modern uh, Buddhist movement in India, which is located uh, in the communities that were formerly known as untouchable. Uh, and I have a, a long relationship. I've been going for about 10 or 12 years to India and working very closely with people from those communities, particularly in education. And also it has been an enormous education for me. But I can't go there without remembering and calling the names names of people that we have lost here. So we remember George Floyd. We remember Dante Wright, 20 years old, uh, unarmed, killed in Brooklyn, Minnesota. We remember Andre Hill, who was uh, shot in on Tuesday in uh, Columbus, Ohio. There was a young man, was it Ted Costello, who was shot by police in Chicago the day before yesterday. And so many, so many others. Breonna Taylor, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Oscar Grant. Uh, young and unarmed African-American people whose extradition, extrajudicial murders uh, have gone largely unacknowledged by the legal system and the pattern of their killings weighs on all of us. So we ask the question, what does realization look like? What does liberation look like? And for me, liberation, realization, freedom is an activity. It's not a meditative experience. Things can take place within our meditation but the real test is how this unfolds in our living. And so for me, what I try to see in myself and in others is liberated activity, enlightened activity. And that's the mark. So this exists on 
you know, tradition and traditional interpretation exists on a mundane level and on a super mundane level. On the mundane level, it's concerned with our life in the world. In the super mundane, it's about leaving the world, leaving the cycle of samsara. And of course, we have a kind of pushback in the Mahayana tradition by the Bodhisattva vow. But it's not just in the Mahayana tradition. So I found a passage by Bhikkhu Bodhi, the extraordinary scholar and translator, who's also very much a person of his time. He's a monk, but he grew up in a time and place, actually in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and uh, he returned from decades in Sri Lanka to be able to expand his teaching. So he, I found something that he wrote that I think is relevant. He said, as I now look at our situation, I distinguish three main, three major domains in which human life participates. One I call the transcendent domain, which is the sphere of aspiration for classical contemplative spirituality. So this is, uh, this is what perhaps we've been taught is nirvana uh, or moksha, uh, release from the cycle of birth and death and leaving that wheel. The second is the social domain, which includes our interpersonal relations, as well as our political, social, and economic institutions. And the third is the natural domain, which includes our physical bodies, other sentient beings, and the natural environment. He writes, from my present perspective, a spirituality that privileges the transcendent and devalues the social and natural domains or sees them at best as stepping stones to realization is inadequate to our current needs. Such an orientation has led to a sharp division of duties that puts our future at risk. So where we privilege this kind of vast spirituality or we privilege emptiness, if you will, then uh, we are devaluing the miracle of life that is taking place here. And uh, we are not realizing that the extrajudicial murders of African-American youth, the shooting of uh, Asian and Asian-American spa workers in Atlanta is 
a rip in the fabric of the universe. And as bodhisattvas in training, it's incumbent upon us to address that, address it before the damage happens. So just to say, this also really fits with the Four Noble Truths. And I tend to go back to basic Buddhism for my, uh, the systems that, that I use to look at things. Uh, there's lots of other ways. There are lots of other systems and tools and, and uh, mnemonic devices. And all of those are really useful if they resonate with you. And I go, I tend to go back to the basics. Uh, it's just like, you know, in the, the music that I play tends to go back to the basics. I'm sort of a traditionalist in a, or a neo-traditionalist. Um, so we look at the eightfold, we look at the four, the four noble truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering. And when we look at what I'm talking about in terms of liberty, equality, fraternity, and I will get to it, uh, I'm talking about, we talk about liberation and it's interesting because it exists in the Buddhist tradition and also exists in the, the Western political philosophical tradition, uh, there's positive and negative freedom. Positive freedom, well, positive freedom is the freedom to do things. It's the freedom to become who you are capable of becoming. And you know, it's the freedom to do all, I mean, we can imagine the, all of the freedoms and they're delineated, uh, they're delineated in uh, the founding documents of this country, also in the founding documents of India, which I'll get to in a moment. So that's positive freedom. Negative freedom is freedom from. And often that's where we have to start. for the African-American community. It's freedom from the oppression of, of violent policing. It's freedom from the domination of white supremacy. Uh, it's from the freedom from fear which now besets also the Asian and Asian American community. I, there are people in, in our community in Berkeley um, who are afraid and they realize that they've carried this fear for a long time. So it's freedom from fear is, is a really critical element. And in fact, if you really, th if you think about it, uh, if you think about uh, 
the Heart Sutra, which I assume you, like us, chant every day, uh, at the heart, the pivot point to me of the Heart Sutra is where it says, without any hindrances, no fears exist. The Heart Sutra is about fearlessness. That is what it is trying to actualize. So it's that freedom from. And then there's the question of how do we get there, which is the Eightfold Path. The, the Eightfold Path, uh, which I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into great detail about, but uh, we're talking about right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. All of these are the elements of a life. And I think one of the things that's wonderful about the Zen practice that, that we've been brought is it doesn't, uh, while it centers on Zazen, the shape of the practice is just a day. You wake up, you meditate, you work, you study, you cook and eat, you uh, get some recreation. All of this is part of, this is part of our, the day, it's part of a day of, of session or part of a day in the, in the monastic tradition. And actually in that tradition, in some of the traditions, the candle in the Zendo is always lit. It's never put out because the practice never ends. So our path, you could say that the Eightfold Path this, this, you know, I just, I just thought about this. You know, you know, in our tradition, we, uh, we talk about practice realization. Dogen Zenji talked about this, that uh, we don't practice in order to become enlightened. We practice to express our enlightenment. And I think it's really useful to look at the Eightfold Path in just that way. The Eightfold Path is not the path to enlightenment, but it is the expression of the third noble truth. It's the expression, if you can live in this way in alignment with all of the elements of the Eightfold Path, then ipso facto, you are living a, you're living enlightenment. You're living realization, you're living freedom. So, just for a moment, take a breath and let some of that, whatever sticks in your brain, let some of that settle with you.
almost 35 years ago, I read a book about uh, Dr. Ambedkar and the, uh, the movement of Buddhism among untouchables were the most oppressed uh, communities in India, uh, suffered, suffered great, they still suffer atrocities and violence at the hands of upper caste people. They have the worst jobs. They have no access to education. Women are subject to uh, sexual attack and so forth. I, I won't document all of that. But Dr. Ambedkar was, was an amazing person. Uh, he had the advantage of going to school because his father was in the uh, Indian army. And this was at the end of the 19th century. And he just won scholarship after scholarship until he uh, graduated from university in Bombay. And he was the first person of his uh, untouchable community uh, to have a, a college degree. And then he won a scholarship and earned a PhD in economics at Columbia University in New York, where it happens I went, uh, although I didn't know anything about him. Uh, then that wasn't enough for him. He went and got another PhD at the London School of Economics. And by the way, was admitted to the bar in England. So he re when he returned to India, he returned as perhaps the most educated person in the country, but he was still an untouchable. He, had a, he received a job in one of the uh, princely uh, realms when in, in this uh, legal office and the other lawyers there would, they wouldn't even put briefs down on his desk. They threw them in the vicinity of his desk. He couldn't drink water uh, with them. He couldn't eat with them. He couldn't live in the places that were near to his work. Uh, so for all of his education, he was just an untouchable. And we see this in our community for all the education that uh, an African-American man has in certain eyes, he's just a black man. We see what happened uh, in the, the encounter of the police and, and Henry Louis Gates a number of years ago. Uh, this is not unusual. So Dr. Ambedkar became an advocate for, basically he was a civil rights worker and a human rights worker. He advocated for the rights of untouchable peoples. Um, and he became uh, very well known, led a huge movement and was invited uh, by Nehru to be the first law minister of India uh, when India received its independence. And so he, he was the principal drafter of the Indian constitution, which is a, a remarkable 
document. Uh, it's it's the most forward-thinking constitution that I've ever seen. But like all constitutions, you know, the idea is really good, and the enactment may have some missing parts, like ours. But at a certain point, he realized that he was not going to be able to find the, the freedom, the third noble truth that he wanted within the community of, of Hinduism. And uh, he began exploring other religious traditions. And that was a 15, 20 year exploration. Uh, and he ultimately arrived at Buddhism as the, the proper religious destiny for his, for his communities. So um, to cut a make a long story short, in 1956, in October of 1956, he publicly converted to Buddhism in front of 400,000 people in the city of Nagpur. He had the, he had the precepts, and he, he had the refuges and the precepts administered to him. And then in you know, a remarkable radical move, he turned around and he administered the uh, refuges and the precepts to everyone who was there. Uh, and 400,000 people converted that day and that began a conversion movement and that movement has, has continued. So a few years, as he was arriving at Buddhism, uh, in a radio broadcast, he said this, positively, my social philosophy may be said to be enshrined in three words, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Let no one, however, say that I have borrowed my philosophy from the French Revolution. I have not. Well, we can argue about it. I think he sort of did. But, uh, but he reinterpreted it. My philosophy has its roots in religion and not in political science. I have derived them from the teachings of my master, the Buddha. So liberty, equality, and fraternity. Um, that to me is a definition of the third noble truth. And it is resonant with, I think you can map it very readily onto the three treasures. So if you think of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and we can, you can argue with me about this, that's fine. Uh, liberty, the Buddha is free. The Buddha is free from birth and death. The Buddha is free from delusion. The Buddha is free to walk wherever he wants, uh, to speak to whomever he wants. Uh, the Buddha is, is the embodiment of freedom. So I can think of uh, that resonance makes sense to me. 
if we look at the second, liberty, equality, fraternity. Uh, equality uh, is to me at the heart of the Dharma. It's the great mirror wisdom that we speak of. Equality is seeing ourselves in each person that we see. It's what Hakuin Zenji said, you know, you yourself are the Buddha. And even though we may have some doubts about that, uh, in essence, that's the fact. And equality in, in our social realm means that everyone is of equal valence. It's not that everyone has the same abilities or talents. Every one of us is different and unique in that way. But no one of us can be valued more or less than any other. And so I think that equality and Dharma also resonate with each other. And the third fraternity is, that's kind of obvious, fraternity and Sangha as the third jewel. Uh, not just the Sangha of our immediate community or your community in Austin, but the Mahasangha of all people and all beings and recognizing that on the basis of their, on the basis of equality, we are in relationship with all of them. To me, fraternity or sangha or the view of wholeness of society is ancient on the first two refuges, the first two treasures. Uh, that if there is not liberty and if there is not equality, there cannot be sangha, there cannot be fraternity. And I realize it's, it's interesting, fraternity, if when it comes out of France, it, it has a, a, a different envelope of meaning uh, than, uh, I mean, you live in Austin, I'm sure there, there are fraternities there, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I lived across the street from a fraternity in my in college, and it's like that's not my ideal, you know. <laughs> but uh, there's no. It's interesting. I've tried to find better words, but I haven't, because they have different implications in different uh, settings. Like for for me or for us, I might use the word liberty, equality, community. But if you go to India, you can't use community because community is a basis of discrimination. Community implies caste, 
it implies a particularity of a of a set of people uh, in a in a system that is a scale a you know graduated inequality. Each one of those graduations is a community. So, and I so you can't use sorority, uh, you know. But so we'll stick with. I'll I'll just use fraternity. But you know what I mean. And that our relationship, our feeling of connection, depends upon our deep understanding of equality and our yearning for freedom and to recognize also that in this world uh, notions of freedom and notions of equality are in a dynamic tension with each other. Uh, you know, in a sort of absolute sense, the freedom to do something means, might mean the freedom for me to do whatever I want. But that doesn't take into account my relationship with you or what you might want or need. So whatever, you know, whatever some billionaire wants uh, certainly doesn't coincide with necessarily with what is wanted by somebody who's working on the factory floor. But then if we shift the frame to one of equality, uh, we see that there's, there's the energy for a kind of correction. And I think that the, the practice that Dr. Ambedkar was trying to inject into these untouchable communities and into, in, but not just into them, into all of India, was one of finding balance and finding harmony. So you could say that liberty, equality, fraternity, those are the principles of Sangha that we have here. They're also the principles, they're also the foundation of what Dr. King referred to as the beloved community. And in that context, and in the, even in the context of Sangha, as I'm sure you know, there are conflicts. And conflict is not bad. Conflict is a field of creativity. And how we resolve those conflicts is the issue. To resolve them in a setting that recognizes and respects the other person as whole as I am? Or do we try to reflect, try to resolve them with power over and violence? So I think the beloved community, I think the Sangha and the community that Dr. Ambedkar was, uh, was dedicated to in the context of India as expressed in the Indian constitution is 
a sangha of harmony, a community of harmony. And this is what the Buddha created from the very beginning. Uh, he, he didn't reject the society that existed, but he did what uh, the wobblies of uh, late 19th, early 20th century uh, spoke of as uh, he built the new within the shell of the old. And, you know, it's really useful for us to study Indian history, which most of which we, you know, we're not aware of. I wasn't taught any of it. I bet I can't imagine that very many of you were. Uh, but for uh, for about 800 or 1,000 years, Buddhism was the communal form uh, and it was spread all over India. And then it fell prey to various other religious antagonisms and internal problems, but it was there at the heart of the culture for a long time. And now it's being, now it's being revived. So I think I'm gonna stop there if that's okay and take, take questions. Uh, I know I've covered a lot of stuff and uh, I apologize for it being uh, maybe less uh, graphic than, than it might be, but I'm, I'm happy to answer any of your questions about what we've been speaking of or about uh, these wonderful communities that, uh, that I work with in India. And to recognize also, we have our own work here. We have to do our work here. Uh, and we can take inspiration, uh, let's continue. So I don't know how you do the, the calling of people, but uh, I am, I welcome your, your questions or comments. Okay, uh, Mary's first up. First, thank you so much for your talk. It was um, just wonderful to hear uh, your thoughts, your perspectives, and that wonderful interweaving of the, sort of like the French thing with the Buddhist is, is it was wonderful. I, I will say to you that um, often with the Austin Zen Center, I, uh, I feel like the raisin in the sun because I'm the blackest thing on the screen. And, um, you know, I, and some days I feel like I should put a little, like little signs up and say, PhD molecular biology, uh, MD, uh, upper 10% of my class, you know, all these things, board certified, all those things. <laughs> but um, because I just, you know, it's like I often, just you know it's like you 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 just wonder 
if part of your community perceives you with condescension or what, when you talked about that perspective of equality, um, I, you know, it, it does make you uh, often wonder when you're the raisin in the sun, um, what the, you know, the other fruit in the sunlight, uh, it's like how in, as you're joining the pears and the apples and the bananas and, you know, all of the other juice, the plums and everybody, it's, um, I like that part about raisin because I'm old, because, you know, a raisin is kind of like an old grape. So, but it's like, how can I, um, it's, it's just like, just how can I um, really deal with the um, communication that is necessary to interact with this community with and 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 just say don't condescend to me because I'm because I'm black don't um, or I'm old because those are two things it's not just being black also old um, don't condescend to me but how can I say that in a community friendly non-polarizing, non-adversarial, um, gentle sort of like, again, it's like, how do I meet folks on equal ground? Because often um, there is somehow conveyed occasionally in some communications, this, um, it seems like an attitude of bear of oh oh okay it's the black one again oh oh it's the black one anyway so that's my question to you thoughts on that well what occurs to me is you just did you just said it to everybody on the screen right And I would imagine a lot of people here heard you. Um, then there's other work to do. Each of us has our work, uh, our individual work of unlearning our internalized oppression. You know, uh, just, this is not a, a comparable thing, but by circumstance, I was the only Jewish kid in my uh, upper class WASPy private school that I went to when I was when I was really young, and there was anti-Semitism, and I did feel it, and I internalized it. Uh, and so there's work that each of us has to do, including you. And then there's work that the community has to do. Uh, you know, you, it sounds like you're, you're doing work on um, uncovering racism within your community. It sounded like from one of the announcements. Uh, 
And I think that everybody has to figure out how to relate to others on the basis of equality. You know, uh, some of us have to figure out, I have a very close friend who uh, took up practice when he was 55 and really changed him. And he said a few years later, you know, until I took up practice, I never realized there were other people out there. You know, and so we have different levels of, of recognizing quality. First, it's just that some of us need to just see there's, there's actually somebody aside from myself uh, out there. And others have to figure out finer approaches and look at their own internalized and unseen uh, biases. And so in a sense, what I feel like is that's what you were just asking, you know? And so that's very kind of you to, to ask that and uh, brave too. Uh, and uh, fundamentally, I hope we are creating places of trust in our, in our practice places so that uh, things that are unseen can be seen and can be worked on. That, that's kind of my thought for the day. So thank you. Thanks, Mary. Other questions, thoughts, please. Rich has his hand up. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you for that. Um, you said uh, something that interests me right now. I've been studying the Eightfold Path and um, you asked the question, how do we get there? And you said the Eightfold Path. And I was like, sounds about right. Um, but I'm still trying to figure out what that means. And so could you talk a little bit about um you said practice realization is an is our, is to express our enlightenment and the eightfold path is can you talk a little bit about that please sure um well i think that a lot of the sets of practices that we have um if you look at the paramitas look at the factors of enlightenment all these buddhist dharmic lists they are both practices and expressions so the paramitas, uh, giving, morality, effort, uh, patience, etc. Uh, these are the natural practices of realized bodhisattvas. It's what they do. And they're just kind of given, they're created as a rubric. Uh, there's what they do naturally without necessarily thinking of them. For some of us, what we can, what they offer is a set of practices by which we become realized bodhisattvas. And I feel the same way about the Eightfold Path. I mean, there's, there's an expression, the path is the goal. Uh, and I think that's saying the same thing as what I was positing as if, if you are living 
a life of liberation, then you just naturally are enacting all these steps on the path. And if you follow these steps on the path, then you are likely to come to a life of liberation. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Yeah. So good luck. Stay on the path. Thank you. Jess, I see Jess. Hi. Um, gosh, I have not spoken on here in so long. So hi, everybody. I really miss you so much, <laughs> first of all. Um, and this is not a question, but it's, it's just a comment of pure delight um, uh, that your talk is very serendipitous for me because today I'm meeting uh, my nephew for the first time. He was just born a few days ago. Okay. And I was thinking, as I do, what should I wear? Um, and I thought I have a shirt that says egalité, fraternité, or yeah, whatever in the right order. And I thought, oh, I should wear that shirt. And then I came to this talk and like you've opened up this whole other meaning in this shirt that I already love. Um, and, then, and then also I have always struggled with um, the Sangha part of the three treasures. Like to me, it's not an inherent truth. Like I struggle in community. I always feel, um, it's just like not like I'm kind of like um like a loner a little bit. And so I've been kind of, you know, like staying with that feeling and and working and working with it and knowing like there's something that I'm not getting in what Sangha means, you know? And uh, there is something about thinking about it as fraternity to me that actually like unlocks something different. And I, I suddenly like, there was a little bit more light that was let in for me. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Thank you. I mean, you, you know that your nephew doesn't care what you wear, right? No, it's for me. <laughs> it's always for me. <laughs> it's all about yeah. me. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was so, see, I, I'm I'm just, we have different character, we have different characters and different uh, inclinations. You know, for me, all my life, I've been looking for community. Maybe it's, I was looking for, for family out of the dysfunctionality of the family that I had. And so I, I've just always been part of one. So, so that's, and, but I, I talk to a lot of people who, who have, you know, who have the perspective that you do. And I do think it's not, it's not insignificant that the Buddha talked about three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, that Sangha is important. Sangha is the, Sangha is the, it's, it's often the place where we, we can hone our growing edge. Uh, and 
you know, it's, we can be in harmony with the whole universe if we're sitting under a tree, but if somebody walks by, all of a sudden, uh, we're not feeling so harmonious or if somebody starts an argument or something like that. It's like, uh, and it happens really quickly, you know, so, uh, live by vow. And the vow is to, you know, is to take refuge in these, in these three treasures. And if sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Uh, you can't get, you can't be useful to them unless you get close to them. So that's what I would say. Thank you. Marco has a question. So Alan, thank you. Thank you so much. It has been such a great pleasure to see you. Uh, uh, even through this mediated context of this Zoom screen. Uh, I remember the last time you were in Austin, you were here for the Lays and Teachers Association yes. meeting, I believe, and we had lunch at uh, Cherrywood. So I look forward to being able to sit down and have lunch with you again, hopefully soon. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to just thank you and um, for specifically what you brought up about conflict in community. And I think this dovetails well with what Jess has just brought up as well. Um, just the other day, I was in a in a uh, like a Soto Zen group, a priest group, a meeting of a BIPOC priest group with other teachers, heads of centers, and one of the topics of conversation was around the conflict that comes up around activism. And I wonder if you could say something about that, because from this one person's perspective, she was bringing for it was around the upcoming may we all uh, may we gather um memorial ceremony on the fourth that we're going to be uh uh joining in from austin zen center from we're going to do it from the side that's, yard that's but it was the, around that's the, uh, that's the asian american uh service yes yes, yes. Yeah, me too yes yes so so she was bringing it up to her community and she did the same thing that you did in the very beginning of your talk where you named names and she got some blowback from some of her community members and was talking about how to how to you know how to um, address it or how to how to practice with this kind of blowback somebody accused her of of um i think she said she used the word somebody accused her of being of jumping onto wokeness right as a i mean it wasn't even in the context of this is just performative or something like that it was Somebody in her community felt like this is not what we do as Buddhists. Like what we do is, um, you know, we don't get political. We go inward. We shine the light inward. And anyway, it was uh, she brought this up in the context of, you know, how to how to work with the conflict that comes up around participation in act in activism as Buddhists. And given your background, <laughs> I know that you have must have many many experiences. Um, with this particular issue within Sangha and and how you how you do come sorry oops, how you do come back to basics the fundamental four noble truths eightfold path when working with the inevitable conflict that comes up when people have different ideas about what Buddhists you know ought to be doing 
with their time and energy, especially as community. Right. Well, it's this is certainly happening uh, everywhere, including to some degree in, in our Sangha. I think in our Sangha, there's only a couple people who might dare to vocalize that, you know, it's, yeah. it's Berkeley, but uh, I never imagine that there's a hundred percent agreement on this. But I, I think it's the teacher's role to lead where they really feel uh, the circumstances of our world need to be led. You know, and you see that if you can look say at the, at the Catholic church on social issues uh, with a couple of exceptions, uh, I would say that the, the, the Catholic, Catholic social values uh, that are, that I find in, in priests and in, in higher level clerics are ahead of where their communities are. Yes. And you have to bear it. This is patience. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that the, what that means to me is finding ways to be in communication with the people who are afraid. Yeah. It's fear and it's, it's an incomplete understanding of what, uh, what Buddhism is. You know, it's, it's interesting. The one way that I think about this uh, is that in the Buddha's time, everything was socially determined by virtue of your gender, your caste, your language, your reason, your region, your occupation, where you were born was where you stayed, right? Uh, and what the Buddha offered that was radical was within a community context, uh, he, he offered uh, a radical individualism within a Sangha context. And he did this, in, you know, to people, he welcomed people of all castes, he welcomed women. Uh, you know, these are all very radical steps. Mm -hmm. And they were against the hierarchy of, uh, of power in his social world. And he just, he just offered it and welcomed people. Uh, and so I think of that as radical individualism. Fast forward 2,500 years to a country that is founded on principles of individualism. It might be that what's radical now is cooperation, uh, is, is looking at at the wholeness rather than just the individual, that that individualism is is an illness in this society, uh -huh. and it's not to negate it, but to say there's there's another context, and that that's what Buddhism might look like now. So mm. Buddhism is, it's basically to me, it's the application of principles of of liberation, of liberty, equality, fraternity to our world as it is. 
to to the lute string, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So, um, also, I trust. What I've come to do is, I really trust my community. That I don't necessarily feel I have to answer every complaint or every critical comment. Uh, some of them I will, but but also to trust in the larger process and the and in the the flow of time that. Uh, these these issues will get addressed uh, by hopefully by by someone else to be addressed at a horizontal level rather than as a as a top down uh, you know fiat. Yes. Mm. Wonderful things to cultivate, and I know that uh, Berkeley Zen Center has uh, a very long standing history of things. <laughs> I mean, let me just say something. And I, well, I'm going to say it. I have some hesitation. I think that we have, there, there's coming from a different generation, there are things that my teacher understood and things that he didn't fully understand. And I don't feel like he ever blocked things. But where he didn't support them, they tended not to move. Uh -huh. Yes. And we have now, we have some different opportunities and I'm, I'm really coming to be aware of them and also different resources in the community and also different resources among my friends in the in the wider Buddhist community. So there's a group, there's a small group of us uh, of white teachers, group of four or five of us who've been meeting regularly uh, to discuss these issues and how they how they play out in our communities as well. And that's very that's really been incredibly valuable. And it also builds our relationship. So, yeah, that's, that's where I think for the moment. Jose. And Jose would like to ask a question or offer something. All right, thank you, Charo. Um, uh, uh, thank you, Hosan, for the wonderful talk and for uh, uh, letting me see uh, you know, uh, uh, liberty, uh, equality, and fraternity in a different light. Uh, and I was even wondering if there are even two ways of looking at it, because I, I know what it's like to sort of uh, step into Buddhism for the first time and see like, oh, there's this path to liberation. So I'm going to follow this path. I'm going to be really awesome because I'm going to do, you know, do these things and I will be liberated. Uh, and then, of course, you can say, oh, you know, sure, there's a Sangha. And, uh, you know, uh, there, there's some people I like in the Sangha, you know, but, uh, you know, you only think of maybe those people that you like. And so it all becomes very self-centered. Uh, and then there's maybe another way of looking at it where you... Uh, expand your own awareness of, the, of these notions of you know, uh, you know, equality, uh, fraternity, and liberty, uh, liberation, where, uh, where it becomes something more beyond yourself. Uh, and so you're liberating yourself from your own self in a way, uh, and uh, you're learning to see uh, your son, like 
to, to try to resonate with the entire sangha, not just those people that like. So is there a question in there? Um, uh, is, that a, is that a reasonable way of looking at things? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, most of us, I don't know, uh, most of us at Berkeley Zen Center, maybe most of you, do not come from a Buddhist background. Uh, and, you know, it's quite different than, uh, say, if we came from China or Japan, where it's, it's more the air that we breathe. We come from, we come from mostly a Judeo-Christian orientation, perhaps. And it's also true that we have, we have absorbed very deeply those values for better and worse in us. And there's a lot of better. You know, I, I, my friend Tygen Layton and I talk about this a lot. You know, it's born into a Jewish tradition. We have, you know, there's a prophetic dimension. And that's not particularly Buddhistic. But it's also what we, what we absorbed from, from early in our lives. So what I love about Buddhism is that everywhere it's gone, it has synthesized uh, and drawn on the traditions of the cultures where it, where it arrived. And we are doing, we're in the same creative process. So, um, I, I sort of see it that way. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the things that's really interesting in, in India is like many of ourselves, they're also converts. You know, there's no Buddhism in their direct background. They're, they are learning, absorbing, and involved in the same kind of creative processes that, or parallel creative processes to us. So uh, that's very inspiring. Maybe one more. I would like to, if no one else would. I just mentioned that I really appreciated Liberté, Galité, Fraternité, precisely because it has this familiar to us in the West, you know, perhaps ring to it. And the French Revolution and the American Revolution, you know, have some commonalities, at least in their ideals, if not in the way they've unfolded. I was trying to come up with another word for fraternity, just in case, you know, something occurred, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have that ring of, you know, liberty, liberty equality and, and fraternity. And I can't think of one because they all have gender, you know, there's a gender aspect, you know, fraternity comes from the root for brother, yes. you know, and brotherhood is another one, right? It doesn't include, it has a gender exclusivity to it, but it yeah. does, I think one central idea, which, which I like in Sangha, at least Sangha as we, we practice it, is it's the chosen kinship. You know, there's this idea of kinship. And even in the idea of a fraternity, it's a bunch of guys come together with a shared purpose or a shared 
ideology or something, you know, even if that's to party, <laughs> you know, there is a, there's a chosen association and, and it's expressed as family, you know, this kind of strong kinship bonds. And so maybe if we can emphasize that our chosen family our, is everyone. Yeah. It's the coming together and it includes everyone. And, and it's the Maha Sangha of all beings ultimately, you know, um, but the, the idea of kinship seems to me to be kind of the, the core here. Yeah, I think that's true. And I was thinking, well, could be fellowship? No, that's gendered also. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's very hard, but the intentionality is the central issue. And Sangha is an intentional gathering. All congregations are intentional gatherings. Um, and whereas race is not an intentional gathering, it's, it's an uh, but then it becomes a kind of structural imputation uh, that's projected on certain people by a, according to the way they look. Uh, and this is the very thing also, just a last thought for the last, for a year, my wife, Lori and I have been studying We've been reading the Lankavatara Sutra, and uh, we're, you know, we're studying the Yogacara school, and it just keeps hammering home how our lives are completely created out of what we think, and. This is where we come back to how do I want to live? Do I want to live pulled and pushed around by my karma, which is what I think for various reasons, or do I want to live according to vow, which is replacing one set of thoughts and perceptions with another that is in accord with wholeness. So that's where I'll stop. Thank you very much. It's really wonderful to see you all. And sooner or later, maybe I will get down there. You're entirely welcome. We'd love to have you in person. It'd be great to have you back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.